The book of Leviticus provides highly detailed instructions that make up much of the law for the nation of Israel as they have made their exodus from Egypt and are wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. The theme of the book could be summarized with one word, holiness. The first two sections of this book are dedicated to the five types of offerings that are given, and then the way to handle those offerings. These two sections encompass chapters 1 through chapter 7. The third section of Leviticus provides instruction on the establishment of the priesthood with Aaron and his sons. It also tells a vivid story of Nadab and Abihu, which powerfully speaks of God's holiness and his specific demands for acceptable worship. The rest of the book is filled with prescribed laws for the people of Israel, including laws concerning sex, feasts, holidays, blessings and cursings, as well as vows. One commentator says of our section today, Leviticus 19, while the laws of Leviticus 19 will lead to a wholesome community and the banking of wonderful reserves of social capital, this is not the chapter's reason for being. The rules are designed first and foremost not as a matter of social convenience, but as a matter of divine holiness. They arise from God's invitation to be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Holiness explains, another commentator, is the quintessential quality of Yahweh in the entire universe. He alone is intrinsically holy. That God is holy means that he is exalted. He is awesome in power. He is glorious in appearance. He is pure in character. Yet in spite of his separateness, astonishingly, his holiness reaches out and his people on earth are called upon to mirror his character. The life of holiness is, in essence, a life of the imitation of God. This is, as another commentator has remarked, quite breathtaking. Israel's quality of life must reflect the very heart of God's character, It was the same demand that Jesus made of his disciples when he said to them, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Peter later reiterated the command and encouraged the early Christians to be holy in all that you do. The call to holiness has never been revoked and still remains the primary call of God's people today. Close quote. Regarding these chapters, chapters 18, 19, and 20, which we're only talking about the section, the middle section of chapter 19, one commentator notes that Leviticus 18 through 20 are arranged as a chiasm. So if you don't know what a chiasm is, think of it as an X, or think of it as a literary pattern that could be described like this, A, B, A. So you have a section of the beginning and a section at the end, and then this middle section is different, but the beginning and the end are very similar. So you've got the two A's in chapters 18 and 20, and then the B section in chapter 19. He describes it like this. The Israelites must distinguish themselves as holy by following the Lord's commands, not the nation's practices. That's chapter 18. Chapter 20. The Israelites must distinguish themselves as holy by following the Lord's commands, not the nation's practices. Chapter 20, he's described them in identical language. Then, 
chapter 19 in the middle, section B, the Lord's holy practices for his holy people. So chapters 18 and 20 are describing what they must do. The Israelites must distinguish themselves as holy by following the Lord's commands, not the nation's practices. Here are the Lord's practices in chapter 19. So that's what we're going to be looking at. These chapters are about holy living. While each one focuses on unholy practices, the Israelites must be sure to avoid. Leviticus 19 also focuses on holy practices that they must be sure to do. Holiness is not simply the avoidance of evil, but it is the practice of righteousness. Leviticus 19 itself may be divided in the following sections, in the following way, A, B, A. Overarching command, be holy for I for the, Lord your, for the Lord your God is holy, verses 1 and 2. And then verses 30, verse 37, summary command, keep and do all the Lord's commandments. Section B, verse 3 through 36, is specific commands for holy living. So if there's be holy, then here's some specific applications. And then there's the overall command reminded again in verse 37 to keep the Lord's commands. Now all of this... There's a bit of technical background stuff, and you might be sitting there saying, all right, Andy, that's nice, cool, great. It's kind of beyond my interest level, beyond my attention span. You might be asking or wondering a more simple question, a more relevant question for our message today, which is, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? What does it mean to love your neighbor? My answer I'll give it to you right here, and then you can, as you zone in and out for the next 40-some-odd minutes, hopefully you'll have some, a hook to hang things on. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? The way I will define this is loving your neighbor means doing them genuine good. Doing them genuine good. Now, We find here in Leviticus 19 a summary, not a summary, an an explanation, an unfolding, an exposition of the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you noticed that, but as we were reading it, these Ten Commandments are repeated. The first major section of Leviticus 19, which is verses 3 through 18, contains various laws, mostly of moral character. Most of the Ten Commandments are, in fact, repeated in this section. The similarity of the content of Leviticus 19 and the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20 may be observed as follows. So, see here, Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God, verse 2. You see that repeated In Leviticus 19, I am the Lord, you see that repeated 15 times. Verses 3, 4, 9, 12, 14, 16, 18, 25, 28, 30, 31, 32, 33, 35, and 37. That statement, I am the Lord, is repeated 15 times here in Leviticus 19. That's a big deal. Secondly, the command not to make graven images from Exodus 20 in verses 4 through 6 is repeated in verse 4 of Leviticus 19. Not taking God's name in vain from Exodus 20, verse 7, is described in verse 12 of Leviticus 19. Remembering and honoring the Sabbath from Exodus 20, verses 8 through 12, is mentioned in verse 3 and verse 30. 
The command to honor your parents from Exodus 20, verse 12, is mentioned again in verse 3 of Leviticus 19. The topic of murder from Exodus 20, verse 13, is mentioned in verse 16 of Leviticus 19. Adultery from verse 14 of Exodus 20 is mentioned in verse 29 of Leviticus 19. Stealing from verse 15 of Exodus 20 is mentioned in verses 11, 13, and 35 and 36, four places. Bearing false witness from Exodus 20, 16 is described in verses 11 and 16 of Leviticus 19. And then coveting, the last command, from Exodus 20, 17 is described in Leviticus 19, 18. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you probably know that there are, well, how many places in the Bible that you can find the Ten Commandments listed in summary form? Two. Two is the safe answer. Now, where are those? Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. I did not know. I was not aware. I had not done any kind of study on Leviticus other than an overview survey fashion. I was not aware that the Ten Commandments or. Uh, I think, what, nine of them are repeated here in Leviticus 19. The only one that's not repeated is you, sh- uh, you shall know their gods before me, number one. But that number one command is linked in with these words, I am the Lord. I am the Lord your God, which is repeated 15 times. So he's kind of making up for it. So if, I would say if you wanted bonus points in some kind of Bible trivia, they say, where are the Ten Commandments found? You could say, well, there's Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, or Leviticus 19. Now, it needs mentioned, how does the Old Testament use this verse, this love your neighbor concept? It's mentioned in multiple places, but two of which are Romans 13.8, which we mentioned briefly, I think, last Sunday. Romans 13.8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up with this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That is in part where I get my definition from when asking the question, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Loving your neighbor means doing them genuine good. Because, Romans 13.10 says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Now, you'll notice that I'm saying that it's genuine good. Not the appearance of good. Not what society might say in any given moment is perceived as good. Because if you've been paying attention, the concept of loving your neighbor has been used as a club to beat people over the head in all kinds of ways that are not genuinely good. Love, loving your neighbor, is doing them genuinely, genuine good, doing no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the reality of Leviticus 19. When Jesus, Paul, John, and others speak of this concept in Scripture, they truly mean that loving your neighbor is literally a summary of the law. It is. They're not speaking hyperbolically. They're not speaking figuratively. This is not their theological interpretation. They're just reading Leviticus and referring to it. They're saying, well, actually, in Leviticus 19, it says that loving your neighbor is the summary of the law. It's a summary of these commands. 
See Matthew twenty-two forty, verse 34 and following. The Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They were happy about that because the Pharisees and Sadducees were political rivals. They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Now, looking at verses 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10, all that's just kind of intro material. Verses 9 and 10. The next subsection of laws begins with a call to preserve justice, whether for the advantaged or the disadvantaged. Though the Old Testament has much to say about aid to the poor, see chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, it is wrong for this attitude to carry over into the realm of the legal system. The Israelites were instructed to care for each other as well as foreigners who were found in their midst. They had laws to allow for utterly destitute people to come gather grain and so have food to eat. This was different from our modern concept of welfare, for it still required work and personal responsibility. It also had a level of dignity to it, of working for your food. A man or woman who went out to glean the edges of a field, like Ruth, would have a great sense of self-respect and reward for their labors. The, the consequences of our welfare system, our welfare state, is that many people waste their lives away in terrible cycles of poverty, depression, joblessness, drug and alcohol use, and illicit sex. One large factor in the culture associated with the welfare state is that those on welfare don't have to work to get their money each month. So they sit around in their homes. Generally, in these low-income housing projects where crime and poverty are the status quo, in these conditions, the individuals lose their sense of responsibility to provide for themselves and their families, and they frequently experience forms of mental illness, such as anxiety and depression. As one man said, if I wasn't here, I'd be home feeling sorry for myself. Getting up, going to work, going to church, going to these things which you are res responsible to do actually helps your mental and emotional well-being. The gleaning laws combated that very culture of slothfulness and irresponsibility, and it also put the poor in the location where work was happening. And it provided opportunities for them, constant opportunities for them to get jobs. If a manager who supervises the harvesters looks out to the edges of the field and saw an able-bodied person working very diligently and faithfully, showing up every morning, working quickly, being careful not to spill any, spill any of their harvest, and improving in his work as he goes along, that manager would want to hire that person. Think about that. This is a ready-made, open-door place of work where you can go to provide for your family, but you could also get a job very likely. Beyond motivating hard work, this practice provided dignity and honor from working. Certainly, those gleaning around the edges of the field or vineyard carried some stigma that they would rather not have, but it was far more noble than being left to beg at the city gates as the lowest of the low. This practice from verses 9 and 10 really beats anything that our modern system has come up with. 
It's much better than anything I've, I've seen or heard that has been attempted. It's not a handout. It's, it's a place of, of work. Now let's consider verses 13 and 14. I'm not sure if my verse numbers line up properly here. Yeah, verses 9 and 10, that's right. Verses 11 and 12. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. God does not want people stealing. If you have a need, number one, you can work, and then number two, you can ask. But do not steal. You shall, shall not deal falsely either. You shall not misrepresent things. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. You say, oh, I swear to God I'm telling the truth. Don't do that. Whenever I hear that sort of language, I assume I'm being lied to, especially if it's a Christian. Because a Christian knows that the Bible says, let your yes be yes, your no be no, and they can just say, I'm telling you the truth right now. You have my word. Verses 13 and 14. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. These verses, which because I've previously kind of lumped them together with the verses 9 and 10, they provide further instruction for the social sphere. A heading is provided at the beginning of verse 13. Do not oppress your neighbor or rob him. What follows are three examples of oppressing your neighbor. The first is keeping the payments which are due to your day laborer. It was understood that the laborers, the day laborers were poor and they had a great need for their daily wages. This was perhaps to purchase food on their way home from work. Or if they were paid in grain, it may have been the food that they would have needed the next morning or the next day. They might have needed it to feed their family. It would have been the equivalent of stealing to withhold your workers' wages overnight because they were really that poor. The second example given is that of cursing the deaf or putting a stumbling block in front of the blind. These examples are straightforward enough. God tells us not to do it. But these are speaking in principle to the issue of oppressing someone who doesn't know that you're taking advantage of them. They don't know that you're oppressing them. The blind man can't see what you're putting in front of him. The deaf man can't hear that you're cursing him. They don't know what's happening. And the applications for this are limitless in our society today. As I referenced either last week or the week before, uh, the issue of the scammers in Times Square who are taking advantage of the tourists who don't know that they're being lied to right now. But a New Yorker knows that they're being lied to because like, they know that's not really a monk. Monks don't dress that way. The, the guys with the brown robes who try and hand you the thing, and then as soon as you take it, like, oh, and, and then they want money from you, and then you now have a friend for the rest of your day, and you're just going to be stuck with this person. But you didn't notice that they're wearing sneakers, and the monks don't wear sneakers. These types of things happen all over the place here. 
This, this concept speaks to the con man, the snake oil salesman, the politician who lies to your face and then they whisper to their friends like, ha I just got him. We don't have a way of knowing what's really going on behind those closed doors. The Bible says not to do that. Let's look at verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Justice must not be perverted. And it must not be perverted through partiality to either the rich or the poor. Bribery on the part of the rich is sinful and unjust. They say, oh, I'll just slip them some cash and we'll get on out of here. Should not do that. Partiality towards the poor is also an injustice. True justice is blind justice. This is why our, our uh, statue of uh, Lady Justice, is. I think, she has a blindfold on. Because it, true justice really is blind. It's not um, corrupted or influenced by the financial status or the looks or the threats that may be tempting. True justice is blind and is not concerned with the economic status of the accused or the fallout and consequences of delivering a proper verdict. Mob rule is also unjust. The sway of popular opinion cannot be the standard for righteousness and justice. We need to take a moment now to talk about this next concept of equality versus equity. Today, equality has been replaced with equity. This means equality of outcome has replaced has been replaced with equality sorry equality of opportunity has been replaced with equality of outcome. The results have already been disastrous particularly in academic worlds and academic spheres. But in time the disastrous outcome will prove to be so evil that hopefully everyone will see it not just the people who are paying attention. Think with me about money. If we want to use money for an illustration of applying this, if you took away everyone's property, everyone's money, we would call that stealing, and you redistributed that money equally to everyone, it would only take a few minutes for people to become unequal again. They could be, they could be equal there in the moment, but just a few minutes will pass and those people won't be equal anymore. Why? Because people are not fundamentally the same. People act differently, even in identical circumstances. This is why twins are not destined to the same fate. You have twins born in the same household, raised with the same everything, but they don't have the same outcome. They make different choices, they have different desires, they have different priorities. And you know what? That's okay. They don't have to have identical plans and identical outcomes. Imagine with me a, a scenario that where everyone's money is taken away and then it's redistributed, and for simple math, we'll just go with $100. 
Everyone is given $100, and everything else I have is taken away. One person spends his $100 going to Costco, and he buys a great big bag of candy. And now his money is gone, but he has candy. Another person gave his $100 to his friend, whose roof was leaking during the tropical storm, and now his friend is really thankful and is going to invite him over to watch the big game next weekend. But his money's gone. He's, he's gained a friend, but he lost the money. Another person kept his $100 in the bank, and now, after two years of saving interest, he has $45.32, because while he gained $0.32 cents in interest, he lost $55 in bank fees. But the good news is... It took a minute to catch on, didn't it? But the good news is he still has cash on hand and he has all of his time free to hang out and not be bothered doing anything he doesn't want to do. He didn't spend time going to Costco and he surely didn't spend time helping his friend fix his roof. He's got his, half his money and he's got his time and he has that choice to do so. Another person spent $20 of his 100 to buy a book at Barnes & Noble on entrepreneurship called How to Start and Grow Business from A to Z, Some Assembly Required. With that book, then, he went to Staples and made a copy of the sample articles of incorporation in the back of the book. He made those copies, spent a couple dollars. Then he bought a case of cheap umbrellas from Chinatown with his remaining $75 and sold them to tourists during rainy weather. And he doubled his money. He repeated this cycle two times, so he had enough money to file those articles of incorporation, open a bank account, and set up a website. Now, in each of these scenarios, each of these sets of decisions will lead to unequal outcomes. Not necessarily one right or wrong, they're just different outcomes because of different decisions. They had unequal decisions, they had unequal labor. They had unequal levels of pleasure because, I don't know about you, but standing in the rain selling umbrellas is not as much fun as eating candy but it also has a different result. These decisions also have different levels of risk associated with them. The one who puts his money in the bank, he knows he's going to be losing money on bank fees and inflation. The one who spends his money starting a business is risking money, but he might have a higher reward. But these decisions also show different priorities. The one might say, actually, Andy, the most important thing to me is to help my friend patch his roof. And I'd much rather hang out watching the game than have money in the bank. Each of these sets of decisions will lead to unequal outcomes. We must realize that demanding equal outcomes is and requires injustice. It requires a fundamental injustice to demand that people must have equal outcomes. Your freedom will be removed. Personal property will be taken away. Your rights as a free human being that is not a slave either of someone else or of the state, all of those things will be assaulted. And this will be fundamentally an injustice to require an equality of outcome. Verse 16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. 
Verse 16 prohibits slander, and it specifically identifies the type of slander in court which could lead to the death penalty. That's what it's specifically talking about. That's why it says, don't stand up against the life of your neighbor. Now, every era of humanity until the invention of cameras and later DNA depended almost exclusively on eyewitness testimony. So it was of utmost importance that society as a whole be trustworthy and truth-telling. Society must take no part in slander or bearing false witness. That's what the meaning of thou shalt not bear false witness truly is. Can you think of any recent examples of people bearing false witness in court? I can think of several. If our system in America was more just and more righteous, those intended consequences that the false accuser intended for his or her victim, those intended consequences would fall on the false accuser. For example, if you slanderously accuse someone of rape, the judgment due to a rapist would fall on you, the false accuser. That would keep, keep these false accusations from running rampant in society. The person, the, 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 if you falsely accuse someone of a hate crime, the punishment that you intended for them is delivered to you. There are two famous examples of these that have been in our news in recent years. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, if you're reading this for either the first time or the first time in a long time, or you know, you're just a lot more familiar with the New Testament than with the book of Leviticus, which is probably many of us, hopefully what you're hearing, though, is echoes of stuff you've read in the New Testament. As you see this, you're like, wait, I, f- I feel like Paul talked about this in Romans. This whole, like, vengeance is mine, don't hold a grudge, that sort of thing. What you will understand is that while, yes, there are covenantal shifts, there are things that change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We are not Old Testament Israel. We live in America. We have a different set of laws and structures and all that. But the fundamental heart of God's law is unchanged because it's based on the character of God. And it's a reflection of his identity, of his character, of his holiness. Verse 17 and 18. Everyone faces challenges of interpersonal relationships. The Israelites were no different. In in a certain event where a conflict would arise... They were commanded not to hate one another in their hearts, but to openly and frankly reason with the one that they were at odds with. Think about Matthew, what, 16, 18? Matthew 18. If you, if you have odds with your brother, you should go talk to them. If they have odds with you, go talk to them. Don't hold it up and don't bottle it up in your heart, but go and talk to that person. They were commanded not to hate one another in their hearts, but to openly and frankly, this was fascinating to me, reason 
with them. The Bible is built on an understanding and an assumption, an assumed reality of logic and reason that you should and can, you must use sound reason. They were commanded not to hate one another in their hearts, but to openly and frankly reason with the one that they were at odds with. This is such a simple and clear command, yet it is so difficult to consistently apply. The motive given behind the command is to avoid incurring sin because of the one that you have hostility towards. In a sermon that Phil Johnson uh, preached, he, he referenced this idea of agreeing to disagree by saying this. No, let's argue until truth prevails. I do think that there's a great deal of biblical truth in that concept, that there is such a thing as truth. There is such a thing as right and wrong. Instead of just just taking that, that exit path out of any level of conflict immediately and saying, oh no, we're just going to agree to disagree. Let's actually reason frankly with one another and truth will win the day. Or as I described from the beginning, what is truly loving your neighbor, that which is genuinely good, that will rise to the surface eventually. God expects us to be able to reason together in order to solve our differences on a foundation of reason and logic. None of this, oh, that's your truth, I have my truth kind of stuff. One scholar says of this text, this next section, believers are instructed to love your neighbor as yourself. A neighbor is anyone who you interact with in the course of a day. As with hate, love is not first and foremost a feeling, but it's an action. In this context, such love means a person is to forgive a neighbor's wrong as quickly as his or her own. More broadly applied, it means a person is to show others the same practical care that he or she shows to himself. Doing so fulfills every law that the Lord gives to his people about how to treat one another. In conclusion, we find that loving your neighbor can be explained by acting justly towards them, according to God's definition, as defined in his word. Loving your neighbor is not a wax nose that can be bent to mean whatever someone wants it to mean. It doesn't mean participating in a lie. It doesn't mean covering up for and allowing lies to take place. In scripture, loving your neighbor has a specific definition, which is the law of God. Specifically, the second table of the law of God, the second half of the law of God, because the first half is dedicated to loving God with all your heart. The second part is loving your neighbor, loving man. What that means is loving your neighbor looks like this. It it looks like honoring your parents. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no bearing false witness, no coveting. This means, all of this means, that loving your neighbor is grounded in truth. Bending truth is not loving. It was repeated four times in this chapter 19, not to lie or bear false witness. 
It is not loving to lie about the nature of reality. Bearing false witness in court is not loving. Imagine with me a world where people did not bear false witness. Imagine a world that was not filled with false accusations. Imagine a world where the concept of fake news wasn't even a thing. Not because people were naive, but because they told the truth. Imagine a world where you could trust the experts because they didn't lie through their teeth. Imagine with me if the most powerful people in the world were people of integrity and that there weren't vast segments of our society that were absolutely saturated with lies and falsehoods. Related to this lying and deception, I've already mentioned it briefly, but bending the law of justice, whether for or against someone, is a violation of love. Lying is a violation of love. Praise God that Jesus did not falsely accuse anyone. Jesus never once bent the truth. He stood in truth. And not only did he not falsely blame anyone for anything, and he did not deceive people, he did not gaslight people, but he actually took the blame of others in order for them to go free. And not only that, but when he takes your blame, when he takes the justice that you deserve, you then are free from your guilt. You're free from the consequences of your sin. You're free from the, the condemnation of it, the eternal consequences. You might still have to deal with that speeding ticket. But Christ has forgiven you if you confess your sins. Therefore, for the Christian, loving your neighbor shifts a little bit. It goes from the guilt of the law to the grace of Christ, and then into the the gratitude, the outflow of our thankfulness that we've received. So now we get to love our neighbor. And it's something that brings us joy. Like we're we're glad when we see truth. When we see righteousness, that fills our hearts with joy. We're not angered by that. We're not upset. We're not bothered by that which is true. So where the rubber meets the road for us today, beyond the gospel, which I've mentioned briefly, but I trust many of you are Christians, if loving your neighbor is doing your neighbor genuine good, then hypothetically, it could mean that loving your neighbor meant wearing the mask. If it were true, if it were true, the getting the jab, taking the shot, whatever you want to call it, if it were true that that actually genuinely saved lives, 
then it could potentially be a fulfillment of loving your neighbor. But if our entire society is built on a foundation of lies, then these things are not necessarily the case. But I'll leave that to your conscience to decide for yourself. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I pray that you would help us to apply this truth that loving our neighbor is the command you've given to us and that loving our neighbor is doing them genuine good. Help us to walk with wisdom toward outsiders, that we would do people genuine good and not harm. That in our acts of mercy and charity, in our acts of kindness towards others, that we would do those things with great measures of wisdom, that we would not be fools. You tell us to be wise. Help us to have great measures of discernment and wisdom, to know what we ought to do in any given circumstance, for we are walking in very complex times, very difficult times, with new issues and new problems crossing our screens multiple times a day. Lord, give us not only wisdom, but also give us courage. Help us to love our neighbor by doing them genuine good, and thank you that Christ did genuine good for us. That he took our blame. And we are counted righteous in him, that we are forgiven of all of our sins by trusting in him as the one who fulfilled the law in our place. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.